Heavenly Father, do thank you so much for your word to us, the Bible. Without it, we would be completely lost. We wouldn't know what to think of you. We wouldn't be able to understand who you are. But you've given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's appointed apostles to make known him and what is to come in the future in the Lord Jesus. So please help us now to humble ourselves before you and before your word. May your spirit work through your word now to challenge us, to change us, to be more like the Lord Jesus so that we might give you all the glory. We ask these, all these things in your great name. Amen. <clears throat> One word to remember the challenge um, from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. One word. Love. They'd forgotten their first love, hadn't they? Their first love was to be Christ. One word to remember the challenge from Jesus to the church in Smyrna. Suffering. Could have been a couple of others, but suffering is a good one. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Be faithful even to the point of death. One word to, uh, if you like... Remember the challenge from Jesus to the church in Pergamon. Truth. Well, we will look at it in a moment. You did not renounce your faith in me. They held on to the truth. Now, although the, uh, the church in Pergamon will be commended for their robust faith, there is a stark warning from Jesus uh, to this church that small numbers of individuals who were in the church, might ruin the whole of the church. But that can be true, can't it, for so many areas of our life. The small things in our lives can ruin it all. I don't know if you watch those programmes, it kind of got wang and all that, wang, whatever it's called, anyway, that fashion type of bloke, clearly I don't watch it. Um, you know, Trini and Susanna, all those kind of people, they get someone to dress themselves, don't they, and they put on all their favourite clothes, and then, they get them to come out of the changing rooms and suddenly they point the finger, oh no, everything's great, apart from that belt, it's terrible, you know. And off they go in this tirade of, you've ruined it with that tiny thing. The small things, you see, can ruin it all. I don't know if you've ever got ready for a night out recently. I know some of you went out um, on a boat, was it last night? I think it was, yeah, and all that kind of stuff. You put on your smart clothes, don't you? You get a... You get in the shower and you know you, you smell lovely, you look lovely, your hair positioned in all the right... I obviously, I, I dream of that. But you, know, you, you position your hair with all the products and do all the business you know, that you do. And uh, girls, you apply your makeup and at that stage, the boys, we just have a beer and all that kind of thing. But, but then you look in the mirror just before you're about to walk out the house and suddenly you see the tiniest, the tiniest of blemishes on your face. And, you know... <laughs> Rationally, you know it is absolutely nothing. But that tiny blemish can ruin a whole evening. You walk around in just utter self-consciousness, thinking, oh, it's like a volcano on my face, and various other things, you know, what do you do? You see, the small things can ruin it all. I'm so rational. Certainly if you play, um, play sport, that's equally true. I, just to, We talked to you know, kind of going out, like, let's go for sport for a little while. But, um, you know, if you play golf, it's, it is a great game, but it's very frustrating. You see, you can be hitting the ball in just the perfect straight lines, long distances, and then, then suddenly, you know, you forget your hands, you drop your shoulders, you, 
you forget to look at the ball, your grip goes wrong, all these tiny, tiny things. And suddenly a ball veers off and lands in a lake, soon to be followed by your clubs as you throw them in anger. You see, the small things can ruin it all. And certainly in Pergamon, this seems to be the issue. For despite being praised as a congregation, um, they begun to tolerate false teaching of differing sorts. And though Jesus remarks that it's only a few things, a small thing, the warning remains as stark and as strong as ever. So I I suppose we, we start this evening with a bit of a warning. Because certainly if we are tempted to justify our own sin, because the rest of our lives seem to be okay, then I think Jesus will challenge you tonight through his word, the Bible. Sometimes we can rationalise sin, can't we? Because the rest of what we do seems, well, it's alright. And therefore we ignore repentance. And we deny the slippery slope that the small things, the tiny things in our lives, are the beginning of. And what I hope we'll see tonight is if we ignore those small things in our lives, not only do they remain, sorry, not only do they ruin the whole, but they don't remain small for very long. So let's look to this letter to the church in Pergamon. We've pointed out where it is on the map. They didn't have the advantageous kind of commercial position of the two previous churches, Ephesus and Smyrna. They were both on the coast. It was therefore not as wealthy and it wasn't as big as those two cities. Yet Pergamon was actually more famous than those other two cities and all the other cities in the whole region of Asia Minor. Pergamon had become the capital city of the Roman province after the Italian kingdom of uh, post-Alexander the Great um, was kind of defeated. And some argue that the capital was Ephesus because of its wealth and its size. But many, many, many people argue that Pergamon remained capital. The situation, I suppose, is much like that that you see in Australia now. The capital, of course, is Canberra. It's a bit of a pub quiz question, isn't it, usually? Uh, But most people... Um, see the wealthy big city of Sydney as the real capital. But Pergamum, you see, it's like like the Canberra of Asia Minor. Historically and politically important, though lacking in size and wealth. And as a historical capital, it boasted numerous temples to the so-called protectors of the city, of Zeus and Athena, and uh, the Italic kings had their own temples, and in BC 29... Augustus, who was the emperor at the time, the Roman emperor, had also built a temple himself and called all the people of Pergamon to go there to worship him as a living deity. So cultic practices were rife. Emperor worship was expected of all. So it's no surprise, is it, that Jesus writes to this city and to this church in this city and saying, I know where you guys live. And look what he says about it, where Satan has his throne. See, Jesus writing to this church in a medium-sized, very historic capital city called Pergamon. And as we've seen every single week, and we'll see for the next four weeks, each letter is addressed to the angel, or that's apocalyptic language, for the leader of that particular church. And Jesus introduces himself using a description taken from Revelation chapter 1, where he's just been described there. Last week, uh, to the church in Smyrna, he uses a couple of descriptions. 
to demonstrate that he is the truly sovereign one. And this week, Jesus' introduction of himself is, is to demonstrate his awesome power. But specifically, his awesome power exercised in judgment. Have a look at it. Uh, it's brief, but it's to the point. Please excuse the pun. Verse 12. To the angel in church, uh, of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. It's a little introductory point on your sheets there. The sharp, double-edged sword in verse 12. You might not realise how pertinent it would have been for the Christians in Pergamum to hear that the words of Jesus are like a sharp, double-edged sword, that, that Jesus had this much power. See, Christians uh, would have walked around Pergamum, this, this great historic city, and they would have seen on most buildings, engraved on all the pavement stones of which they walked on, uh, on the uniforms of the Roman proconsul guards, they would have seen this symbol, of the sharp, double-edged sword. Pergamum is the home of the Roman proconsul, was a place that, well, everyone lived in fear of this symbol. The governor of the city had the power of the sword. It was called the Aes Gladi. Essentially, he could speak and put anyone to death with a word. Now, I suppose it's like the swastika of the Third Reich. This symbol bore obedience from fear and its awesome power. But Jesus, who writes to these Christians in Pergamum, speaks with this power. That he uses, uh, he uses this parallel, doesn't he, of this sharp, double-edged sword. Well, it's, it acts as two things. It's comfort, but it's also warning. When Jesus speaks, you see, it happens. It comes to pass. Such is his divine power and authority. Nothing is ever missed from his word. And the power of Jesus is awesome. I suppose it's a good reminder, isn't it, at the beginning of this talk, to see that we need to hear it. We need to hear his words because he is beyond all earthly powers. He can give life, yes he can. Eternal life, but he can also take it. The, sub, the sharp, double-edged sword. Let's hear these powerful words as he speaks to us now. Verse 13, have a look. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So to our first point there, you see I've put down, you live where Satan has his throne. From verse, verse 13 there. Once again, Jesus knows, every time he says it, he knows, he's showing he's sovereign. He's the king. He knows not only the true condition of the church in Pergamon there, but he also knows the situation of our church here in Earlsfield, every individual and us corporately. He knows everything. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you thought yesterday about a certain individual. He knows everything, even if no one else knows. And he knows that the church here in Pergamon live in a place where Satan has his throne. Such was the the prevalence of emperor worship in this uh, great historic city. Such was the reputation of the city for cultic worship and sacrifices that, that Jesus describes this place as where Satan has his throne. Thrones are, of course, are positions of power. And in Pergamon, Satan had it. 
He had a work to draw people from God to worship something other than God. So-called deities with temples. He was wielding his power both to draw people from God but also to, if you like, persecute those who followed God. Christians like in Smyrna face constant persecution. Though the Roman army and the Jews were directly responsible for all the atrocities, it is clear that Jesus understands that Satan is behind every single one. The situation in Pergamum is not too dissimilar, of course, to the modern, liberal, western city life that we know. Though the justice systems and the, the kind of random violence is less barbaric The kind of idolatry that occurs is no less inspired by Satan. Cities we have grown up in, towns and communities we have grown up in, have deviated from worshipping God because of the numerous attractions that clutter our lives. People may no longer idolatrously worship an emperor, but rather idolatry has moved from the more corporate gathering in in a cultic temple to a much more individual practice. Our culture worships the gods of beauty, of fitness, success, intelligence, wealth and power. Maybe even the god of relationship. Such that if we don't have those things, we feel that we have failed. It's no less idolatry for each draws worship from God and places it on something else. And individuals are no less responsible for being deceived by Satan. The subtle but increasingly blatant pressures we all face to decrease our worship of God were being faced by the church in Pergamum. And what Jesus says is remarkable. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true. What an amazing thing to say. You have remained true. That is, these Christians, despite all these continued draws and pressures to worship anything other than God, had remained true to the name of Jesus. That is literally what the word is saying. He's actually saying they've held on to, gripped to Jesus. If you remain true for someone, to someone or for someone, you remain how they wish you to be. You do what pleases them. You don't stray from that task. And these Christians had remained true to Jesus' name. That is his identity, his way of living for them, his way of worship. Let's go on though. Look what Jesus also says. He says, you've not denied me. In our translation it says, you did not renounce your faith. Do you see that there? See, despite the pressures or continued threat of death for not worshipping the Roman emperor, these Christians had not denied or renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. Even in the darkest days, it seems these Christians had remained strong. The days that we see there of Antipas, you see, refer to a faithful man who lived uh, for a a few years before this letter was written. He was faithful to the point of death in Pergamon. Now, we're not sure of all the details. I say legend has it because I'm not sure of the history here, but legend has it that he was roasted alive after refusing, after refusing to renounce his faith in Jesus. He was a martyr. That term literally means faithful witness to death. 
Antipas was, if you like, the working example of faithfulness that typified this church in Pergamon. Willing to be roasted alive, these men, women, and of course children too, were not willing to deny their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It seems that Pergamon as a city was a shocker. It was where Satan lives, he says. Jesus says it again for emphasis. Do you see that at the end of verse 13? I mean, if he says it twice, it makes a good point. It seems emperor worship had gripped the city. And amidst all this idolatrous worship, there remain these faithful Christians in this young, small church in Pergamon. It seems as if Jesus is going to give them a glowing report, doesn't it? It seems great at this point. But there come some problems in verse 14, as there are in all letters in these seven letters. And I suppose if Jesus were writing a letter to us, the same would be true for us. Only a few things, though. But look at them. Jesus alerts the, reader, the readers to their danger. The small things, you see, can ruin it all. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things, just a few, a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So second point um, on your sheets there. You tolerate false teachers in your church. That's kind of summarising that, that verse 14 and 15 there. There seems to be two sources, don't there? Two sources of false teaching in the church. Verse 14, those who hold to the teachings of Balaam. And verse 15, those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, not much is known about the Nicolaitans uh, within history, with any kind of documents at all. So most consider that the two are kind of coupled here together. Though not identical, very similar in their teachings, in their erroneous teachings. Uh, there, firstly, we see, if, as, a, as a couplet, we see that they encourage the worship of idols. They encourage the worship of idols. Let's turn to the story of Balaam. I don't know if you know it. It's a fascinating story. It can be found in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. That's the fourth book in the Bible. Now, Balaam, after being um, prevented from cursing God's people, Israel, who was a prophet, he advised Balak, who was the king of Moab, that the Israelites would forfeit God's protection if he could entice them to worship idols. You can read about that in Numbers 31. Now, this incident made a massive impression on subsequent generations of the people of God, of Israel, such that the teaching of Balaam became kind of proverbial for all kind of spiritual decline. Therefore, it seems, like Balaam, these people in the church are trying to entice or trap the church to begin worshipping something other than the true and living God. And the two things that are singled out, do you see those there? Is the eating of food sacrificed to idols, and of course the, the one that comes up, sexual immorality. And though the enticement is specifically to food sacrificed to idols, it is symptomatic, isn't it, of teaching that encouraged a movement from God to worship something else. Now God forbids the eating of such food, back in the Old Testament. Eating, eating is therefore an allegiance with something other than God. It's an act of disobedience. And such a teaching exists today. 
Now, I guess sacrifice, food, food sacrifice to idols, that, that's not the issue generally today. I don't see that much in Ilsa, do you? I no, I doubt it. But continued kind of teaching from church authorities and governments to engage in things like multi-faith services, I would say is probably equally idolatrous. Of course, we want to respect our fellow human beings of other religions, but engaging in practices and in their practices because of political correctness, rather than living in obedience to God, is is as idolatrous as eating meat sacrificed to idols. I'll just give an illustration of the the allegiance which God is calling us to, the commitment. Can you imagine, I don't know if you're a lawyer in a firm and that kind of thing, you know, taking on a pro bono case for an opposing firm, just because it seems like the nice thing, the politically correct thing to do. Can you imagine what the the partners of that firm, your firm, would think? They want your allegiance to to their firm. They want your commitment to their firm, not another. Can you imagine if a journalist for one particular, you know, let's give a a the Sun newspaper or something like that, the biggest, I think it's the biggest seller in this country. You know, we're sending a world exclusive. They've got this world exclusive. Could make you know millions of pounds for the newspaper. Can you imagine them selling? sending this world exclusive by email to the editor of the Times just so that they could feel a little bit included. No, you see, they want commitment. They want allegiance. These are not alien concepts to us, are they, in the world? But in the sphere of faith and the religions of this world, they, they sometimes can be usurped, can't they? Bypassed by liberal kind of political correctness. Well, eating food sacrificed to idols showed no commitment and allegiance to God. Now we go from meat to sex. Probably man's two greatest vices are are encouraged by these false teachers that infiltrated the church in Pergamon. We see there in our second little sub-point that they encourage sexual immorality. I, I kind of want to put my hands up and say anyone who's ever taught on this feels pretty wretched at the time while they're teaching it. You kind of despise yourself at the end. Who am I to speak on this issue? Because I struggle just like the rest of us. But unlike those teachers in Pergamon who held to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, I do want to say I struggle. I do want to say I fight against these sins. But I cannot condone sexual immorality. Of course, there are many church leaders throughout the world and in this country who shout vehemently that sexual relations should not be determined by what God says through his word and by his spirit, but rather what the contemporary society thinks and wills. Therefore, that they can change on a whim what is acceptable. The Church of England is so divided on this issue. I'm a Church of England minister, so I'll speak of them. There are those who hold on to the words of scripture, of the Bible, and seeing it as complete and final, a word from God. And there are those more liberal factions in the church who ignore that word from God and choose to interpret God's standards and his way from how they feel at that particular moment. I cannot encourage any sexual immorality. Though I continue to sin, though I continue to struggle and fight against that sin, it is not for me to set the standards. That is what God has done. We know what pleases him, for he has shown it to us in his word, the Bible. 
You see, any sexual union outside the marriage relationship, homosexual or heterosexual, those thoughts, those fantasies, well, God knows them all, as we see in verse 13, and he expects very high standards of his children. And that has to be modelled in the church, such if any of the leaders in this church were to be found in inappropriate sexual union activity, then we would have to ask them to step down from their role as leaders in this church. No, we cannot condone such behaviour. But of course, if, if people walk into our church uh, in relationships, whether homosexual or heterosexual, that, and they're in relationships or sexual activity that God is not approving of in his word, then we have to love them. And we have to um, do everything we can not to ostracise them. We cannot be bigots. We're all sinners and we all struggle. But we cannot condone and we must rather lovingly teach them what God has revealed in his word, the Bible. And we cannot teach sexual immorality as these people were in the church in Pergamon. Look at Jesus' response to the kind of toleration of that kind of teaching. Look what he says in verse 16. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So I've put there, just to conclude this point, repent, or I, that is Jesus, will come and fight. The Christians in Pergamon, in verse 13, we see, had remained true. Literally, as I said, they had held on to Jesus, the name of Jesus. But now there was this enticement, and the same language is used in the Greek, to hold on to the teaching of, the ba- of, of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. That is, you know, to focus their worship elsewhere, either through sexual immorality or um, to enjoy meat uh, that would be sacrificed in idol worship. And the point of this letter, I suppose, is you can't hold on to two things. Holding on to something is pretty key in this passage. And though as Christians, we we love to hold on to Jesus. And I suppose it's easier in a Sunday service, isn't it? Oh yeah, I'll cling to Jesus in my life. He's, He's the main thing. We sometimes, don't we, like to hold on to other things? That small thing. We might think it's quite insignificant in our lives. Maybe a relationship, maybe a little fantasy, a a thought pattern in our lives, a desire for more power, more money, more promotion at work. The point is though, you can't hold on to two things. And Jesus says, repent. And he says, turn from it. Repent, turn, same word. Turn from that which God finds abhorrent. It's the, only, it's the only alternative to, um, to repentance. There's no politically correct fence that you want to sit on here. Jesus says either repent, turn to him, do his way, or I'll come and fight. And he will fight you. And his powerful words, well, they will destroy you in an eternal judgment. It is a horrifying picture. And, uh, you know... I was reading through his stuff and he's thinking, I don't want to say this. And I want you to hear not my voice, but Jesus' voice. And it's a horrifying picture and one that will, you'll continually face as you look through these warning passages in Revelation. He says, repent, doesn't he? 
here last week, wake up. And before, he said, be faithful, or Jesus will do this. With these warnings, like the whole of the New Testament, there also comes comfort. And here's the comfort. If you are a Christian, there comes comfort. If you're not a Christian, there's no comfort. But if you're a Christian, there's great comfort. Look at verse 17 with me to finish. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him the white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Once again, as in every letter, the one who overcomes. That is the one who is a Christian. The one who, yes, still sins, but the one who's going to struggle and struggle and struggle against their sin because they know that Jesus has done everything to, um, to secure them with, Christ, um, with God for eternity. That one, and that one only, receives two things. You see it? Firstly, hidden manna. It's lovely, isn't it? It's a picture. Yeah. If eating food sacrificed to idols, if food is the vice of the church in Pergamum, or, or at least being encouraged by the false teachers, then look at the glorious alternative that's laid out for us to see. He's saying, hold on to Jesus, him alone, and you will feast on this heavenly food that God provides for all those that are faithful to him. You see that picture of hidden manna? It's, it's, it's kind of metaphorical. It's for identification with Christ. It's hidden because we'll only receive it when we see Christ face to face. And the, the manna, because it is, a, it is a provision from God, as in with the manna in the desert of the Exodus, uh, back in the time of Moses in the Old Testament. So he's saying, repent. Struggle with your sin. Overcome the temptation to worship anything other than God. And you will be sat at this wonderful, glorious, eternal banquet with God face to face, with Jesus just up the table there. And not only that, but we will also get these new names. And you see that in the white stone of verse 17. Here's a little white stone. It's about the same size of what they're speaking of. It's mystified scholars for generations. Uh, but consensus seems to point to signifying it's kind of an admittance stone to heaven. White stones in, in that culture were sometimes given like a wedding invitation or a, a dinner party invitation. And your, your name would have been in, either engraved or written on the stone with dye or ink. And the sender or the occasion was written on the other side of the stone. And rather than a card being sent through the post office, you know, you'd be given the white stone of admittance. That was your entry point. Likewise, these stones, for those who over, had overcome, will have a name written on it, but a new name, one that only God knows, and he will receive that person in. God has worked in his children, that is Christians, and yes, he's not changed our names when we get to meet him in heaven, but rather... Name signifies character. And he has worked in and through us, through his word, the Bible, and ultimately through the transforming work of Jesus on the cross, to make sure that when we see him at judgment, we can present these white stones given to us by Jesus dying on the cross, and we can gain admission to that heavenly banquet for eternity.
The small things in our lives that we leave unchallenged by God's word and standard will, will, will one day be judged. Of course, we'll never be perfect, but we need to work to overcome. And we need to struggle in this life against our tendencies to ignore God. God will help you with this struggle and will one day let you enter his heavenly banquet with that white stone of admission in your pocket. You and I, if you're Christians, saved by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, will gain admission to this heavenly banquet. You will be shattered from the struggle of fighting your sin. But you will enter with stone in your hand with great joy. If you do not tackle these small things in your life, they will become big. And they will become issues that will take you from Christ and be evidence to you that you never will have a stone and you never have had a stone. And you at that point will find yourself one day face to face with Jesus, the double-edged sword. And you will lose that fight. And Jesus appeals to every single one of us, as we should do every single day, to turn to him to repent and not to ignore those small things in your life that can and will destroy the whole. Let's pray as we close. Just a moment, maybe a moment of quiet to think and consider what we've learned. Heavenly Father, we are Christians here, saved by the, the great gift of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin in our place. Heavenly Father, help us to examine our lives now, to be honest with, each, with ourselves, to not try and cover up small sins, thinking that we can outweigh those with the other parts of our lives. Help us to realise the danger of doing that, as we've read. The warning is pretty stark to the church in Pergamon. Heavenly Father, if there are those here who do not know a personal and have, and have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, help them to hear this warning now. Help them to turn to the Lord Jesus so that you might see him face to face at that heavenly banquet with stone in pocket and with great joy help them to turn now so that they can enjoy that rather than meeting Jesus face to face as the double edged sword may that be true for all of us may we all now in our own hearts and minds turn with every aspect of our lives to you and not ignore those small things that can destroy the whole Amen